it's such a vital part of of our the culture of our society. It's a massive set of activity which we would be a, a terrible place without. Whether by a nuclear disaster, pandemic or catastrophic climate event, the apocalypse has many possible faces. But this podcast isn't about how it will happen, or even what would happen if it did. It's about how we'd rebuild the staples of our societies if we had a completely blank slate to start again. This is Starting From Scratch. I'm Ollie Gyu, and this podcast asks if we had a clean slate to start again, knowing everything we know now, could we do it better next time? In today's episode, I'm asking, do we need charity and how do we maximise it? One of my colleagues often says, if you wanted to create the social sector that to some extent made life very hard for itself, you'd have done exactly what we've done. That's Dan Corey, the head of the MPC. We'll hear from him in a second, but let me set the scene. We've been given a fresh start, but with all of the knowledge we currently have. So what do we do when looking at the third sector? There's no doubting the huge influence charities have in the world. And if we take a small subsection as an example, in London alone from 2020 to 2021, according to Statista, over 421,000 people used food banks. That's one specific area of support in one city of a small country. Charities are currently integral to the functioning of society in many places, but does it work how it should? So, Philly, you've been producing the show with me. Can you talk us through some of the key considerations when looking at the charity sector? Yeah, hi. Um, Well, I'd like to start with this. The Charities Aid Foundation, or CAF, has been working on its World Giving Index for more than a decade. The info is now available following interviews with more than one and a half million people around the world, and the stats make for pretty interesting reading. So, according to the CAF, these are the most generous countries in the world. Indonesia, Kenya, Nigeria, Nigeria, Myanmar, Australia, Ghana, New Zealand, Uganda, Kosovo and Thailand. Should I ask where the UK and the US feature? (laughs) Well, the report says many of the countries which consistently feature in the top 10 have fallen far down the rankings. That includes the United States, the UK, Canada, Ireland and the Netherlands, with all seeing significant decreases in their index scores. Each was recorded as being on the slight downward trend from 2018, but last year saw a sharp move down the rankings and away from the top 10. In fact, Australia and New Zealand are the only high-income countries to keep their spots in the top 10. Australia wasn't just facing Covid though was it? The rampant bushfires of 2020 led to a huge financial giving didn't they? Well yeah look they did indeed and that will have played a part. Now just moving to look at some more of the report here's a positive stat for you. Across the world in 2020 more than 3 billion people helped someone they didn't know and despite the challenges of the pandemic more people donated money last year than in the last five years. And another impressive stat for you, like I said, Indonesia topped the list of the most generous places and here's why. More than eight in ten Indonesians have donated money in the past year and Indonesia's rate of volunteering is more than three times the global average. Well, the temptation uh, to go through the bottom ten is pretty high but probably a little bit um, unfair because there's quite a few factors that come into play, uh, like the level of state provision, uh, cultural aspects. But what 
we have done is kind of highlight the prominence of giving and of course that money is then distributed for various causes yeah that's right and while i think we would all assume that there are thousands of charities in the uk i don't know how many of us would expect the actual figure in just england and wales alone there are around 169 thousand and the turnover is billions and billions of pounds each year going to the causes and of course the running of those organizations yeah and that's something i wanted to touch on actually uh, the, the perception of charities because i think it's quite naive to think that they don't have overheads or staff costs you know we we like to think that every penny goes to the cause but there are like you mentioned the the running of the organizations has to be considered and you know not 100 percent of donations go towards tackling an issue yeah, exactly. And although various scandals in the last few years have left the sector with, I think it's fair to say, a bit of a damaged reputation, the Charity Commission for England Wales says that is improving. Yeah, we're going to touch on that more in a bit. Thank you very much, Philly. So we have a fresh start to create the perfect charitable environment if we need charity at all. I mentioned Dan Corey earlier. He's the CEO of MPC, which helps charities, philanthropists, impact investors and people like that to maximise social impact in the lives of the people they serve. It's the perfect time to speak to Dan because MPC um, recently launched its Rethink Rebuild initiative and it's looking at the changes in the charitable sector during the pandemic and using those lessons to be more impactful going forward. COVID's been pretty, you know, terrible and the charitable sector, like everybody else, did what it could to help people during the crisis. It itself got hit pretty badly because fundraising, whether that was charity shops or fundraising events like the London Marathon, all had to go. It really hit the finances of a lot of, uh, of charities. But nevertheless, it did, it did its best. And in a funny sort of way, because it just got on with it because it was a crisis, I guess we were all a bit like this. It did a lot of things it's never done before, which were really good. And so part of our uh, program in this Rethink Rebuild is trying to pick up some of those things and say, for God's sake, let's not dump them when COVID's over. Let's sort of keep them going. I mean, for instance, the the sector collaborated much better, uh, much, much better, which is usually poor at uh, little individual charities often don't collaborate. Let's say within a town, they don't collaborate because they feel they're competing. But actually, they collaborated much better with each other and with the local authority and the local health organisations because there was an urgent need. Let's stop the reasons we don't normally work together. Let's just bloody well work together because we've got people to help. So let's keep some of that. Let's keep some of that. And actually, the funders collaborated more. Charitable funders often don't join up. And so they're each funding a little bit here and a little bit there. And it gets very confusing for the charities and they sort of underinvest in token. And they change. So that's important. So that was one thing. Um, The sector has never been, because it's driven by passion, which is a great thing, it's not, it's not too good at being driven by evidence and data. And um, and that's both in trying to identify where the need is for its services and trying to see there's a need for for services here, but there's nobody really operating or funding in that area. And and equally, trying to understand what, which of the things that they're doing are really working and which aren't really working because, you know, some some work better than others. And that changed quite a lot during COVID. There was a lot more use of data, particularly to identify where the need was across the country and where funding was going in and wasn't going in. So that's something we want to want to keep going. There was there was a bigger thing, I think, that comes across as well, because charities tend to divide up into you know, let's say you'll be a homelessness charity or a mental health charity or a housing charity, et cetera, et cetera. 
But in the real world, people, for instance, who are having problems, people who end up being homeless, you know, they've got a housing problem. They've often got a mental health problem. They've often got a drug problem or an alcohol problem, you know, or a relationship problem. And actually, you have to join all those things up if you're really going to help these people. And you saw a lot more of that happening in COVID. And that's something we need to see more of. It, 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 you know, it has a grandiose title about kind of thinking about systems and system changing rather than just dealing with a symptom of a problem. So that was important. And I mean, just just one other thing to sort of mention is I do think that as the crisis hit, government did look towards the charitable sector to help. Some of the big charities, the British Red Cross, uh, Age UK and so forth, they were very important in making sure that particularly isolated older people and vulnerable people were getting contact and looked after. And I think the charities found that government was not really up to speed with what it was exactly they did and how much reach they had and so forth. The charities didn't really know who to speak to within government because the relationships were not there. So I hope during that period, both sides realise they need to have a different kind of relationship and that that will come out of that as well. And that will be good for all of us. So quite a number of of things we do need to kind of rethink and, and rebuild. And we are pushing this hard because I think in any sector, the reason that people behave in a way you think, why don't they behave like that? It's not it's not going to sort of uh, help with their ultimate objectives. But there's usually some reason, there's incentives around that make them behave like that. A lot of them are to do with funding, as I've said. And so there's a, there's, we've got to worry that if you like the kind of elastic band pull of the past will be very strong. So those of us who want to say, come on, let's let's take the good learning out of COVID. Let's build a different kind of sector for the future of charitable sector are pushing this quite hard. And we know it's difficult. I mean, sometimes in, in, in my sort of day job, you know, we're always preaching to a lot of charities. We're saying, come on, you're doing a good job. You could do even better, you know, and if you could do even better, you'd help more people. That's what you're all about. And some of them, they don't quite say it like this to me, but they will say, come on. Dan, you know, it's bloody hard enough to keep this charity going from month to month. And if I keep it going and we haven't gone bust and we've helped some people, that's enough. Um, mm. I, I can't take on board all this other stuff. And I do understand that. And there's a lot of truth in it. But, you know, we've always got to be ambitious, haven't we? So the initiative is about creating a stronger, more effective and more cohesive system. It's focusing on learning lessons to move forward off the back of the pandemic, similar to the concept of this podcast, in fact. Now, a lot of people rely on charity and it's well ingrained into our way of living. But when starting from scratch, would it be needed? It's a big question. I mean, if you go back far enough, we didn't really have much of the state, to be honest. And so any kind of welfare things that were done were done not by the state. They were done, if you like, by a broad definition of kind of the voluntary world, which might have included the church a lot at one point, of course. And, and, and the church and different religions are still very involved in this. So, you know, we, we, we didn't have, you know, universal uh, education provided by the state or health or anything like this or or relief of the poor. It was all done by charities, basically. And I do a lot of bad things about that. It was a bit random. It wasn't universal. It all relied on whether people wanted to give up their time and whether rich philanthropists would give their money. But so we started like that. And then this kind of state, it's not only in the UK, but in most countries, to different degrees kind of took over. Um, and sort of left a, a kind of, of gap. So, so I think we always need a kind of charitable sector. And there's some countries in the world which have a very small civil society, and that causes all sorts of, of problems. You don't have a sort of independent voice. You don't have 
sort of pluralist debates and, and different issues being raised and different ways of trying to solve social problems and all the rest of it. So, so I think we certainly do need a charitable sector. Now, whether we, if we could start all again, we'd have exactly the way we've got our one is much more debatable. I mean, as one of my colleagues often says, if you wanted to create the social sector that to some extent made life very hard for itself, you'd have done exactly what we've done because we've ended up with an awful lot of charities. I mean, in this country, just registered with the Charity Commission, which is a bit of a palaver in itself to do. So a lot of people doing kind of community work and so on don't bother. But even the registered one, there's about 160, 170,000 of them. And each one is trying to fund itself. So it's trying to fundraise. It's trying to get profile. It's looking to charitable funders to fund it. So they all end up competing with each other to some degree, even if they're working on the same thing. They don't collaborate. And that causes all sorts of uh, problems. They're often pretty short of cash, which you might think, well, that's fair enough. I don't want charities to be swimming in cash. But it means that they can't, for instance, invest in digital. They don't do enough kind of uh, research. They're sort of flying by the seat of their pants quite often. And that is a that is a problem. How you solve that is a very difficult thing. But if we're, if we're doing your very nice thought experiment, um, we don't have to worry about resources and how we get from here to there, then I certainly wouldn't have built it the way it is now. Charity will always be relevant then, but there are changes that need to be made. The number of charities often means donations for the same causes are split between various organisations and they find themselves competing with lesser income. So could governments be taking more responsibility? It's a very tense debate, that one, I think, because I do think, I mean, if you, if you remember the period when we started having austerity, sort of in 2010, and there was a period where the Prime Minister of the time, David Cameron, had this idea, he called it big society. And I think he was trying to say in his own way that, you know, he, he valued the voluntary action and, and charitable sector. But it came across to the sector as we're about to cut spending. And so you guys in the charity said, you've got to fill up the gap. And people got very angry about that. They said, you know, that's not our role in life. We can get to niches and help people in a way that you can't. We also, of course, campaign to you <laughs> on their behalf. So you get, I don't know, a charity like Mind, for instance, that is a terrific charity, works with people with mental health, provides a lot of terrific services, but it's also a big advocate in government, you know, trying to get government policy to to be better to help people with, with mental health issues. So you have these, these charities that are doing something a bit different from the state. My view is that the charities are particularly good on working one-to-one -one with people, where people need to help solve or address the, the issues that they've got. They need to have a trusting relationship with somebody. When it's with the state, the state can do things to them. They can put them in prison. It can sanction them. It can chuck them out of school, all the rest of it. And people, a lot of people who are vulnerable find dealing with authority like that very, very difficult. And they will not create relationships with them. And therefore, it, it's very hard for them to get out of the situation they're in. The charity sector feels very different to people. It's got no statutory powers. It can't do anything to you. You don't have to go to it or anything like that. The people who work for it are doing it not because they're part of the state apparatus, but because they kind of believe in the, what they're doing. And that makes a difference. So there's a lot of areas where I think the charitable sector can do better. But equally as well, we, we need people always trying different things. You know, um, the state tends to say, work out what the answer to a particular social issue is like homelessness or something and then say everybody should do this in every council area and all the rest of it 
And you don't get a lot of innovation. You don't get a lot of experimentation. Governments are very frightened of trying something that might fail. It's never good as a minister. And, and I worked in politics for a long time. Never good for a minister to stand up and you say, you know, that scheme I introduced a couple of years ago is going to be a complete disaster. <laughs> they, don't, they don't want to do that. But, you know, the, the, the charities find that difficult too, but they're more likely to take a, take a risk and try something out. So we, we do need this kind of, if you like, mixed economy, mixed society. Whether we've got the balance right at the moment, I mean, we've done some work recently that showed that there's far more charities in less deprived areas. Maybe not a big surprise, but areas that really could do with a kind of rich civil society, lots of, of charities doing things, connecting people, making it a good place to work, have far less of them. And that's almost almost by definition the way that the, the charitable sector works. So if you get the combination right, then you create a much better society. And, and I think at the moment, government and including we, we, the public, give too little weight to this very important uh, sector in decision-making, in an allocation of resources. At the moment, the government's very keen on this levelling-up agenda, which is you know trying to make different areas um, that have fallen behind, that have improved. And if you look at everything they're doing, it's all about physical infrastructure, building some you know, new bridges and new stations and new roads, and I'm sure these areas really need them. But they also need a kind of really active social sector, a community level and all the rest of it. And government is just not putting in the money for that sort of thing. It's a bit nebulous. You can't cut a ribbon when you um, give some money to a, to a nice charity, whereas you can if you've got a nice new shiny station that you can stick on your, on your manifesto. So you can understand why it doesn't happen, but, but I do think we, we haven't got the balance right at the moment. The experience of dealing with a state authority isn't always the perfect solution then. Dan says charities are more approachable. What about the reputation of the third sector though? There have been some high profile scandals in recent years which have clouded the waters and built a certain level of mistrust in some areas. But while there is mistrust, Dan says there are steps we could take when starting from scratch. In a sense, there's a, there is a bit of explanation and some of this is the fault of the charities. Some of them like to pretend that they don't have those things to fund, to be quite honest, and they play it right down. Whereas, I mean, most people do understand, they'll understand to run any sort of organisation. You do have to have some back office. You've got to have some IT that works. You've got to do some research. You better train up your staff. And that's all going to cost money. And, you know, you can have a debate about whether they're spending too much on that or, or too little. And of course, you know, a bit like in the private sector, it slightly depends what sector you're in so if you're if you're cancer research uk you know we'd be rather surprised if they weren't spending quite a lot of money on making sure their people are, are, are trained up to the top levels and all the rest of it some other charities we might think they should be spending less on that i mean the public when they give we would encourage them to think a bit harder about you know the impact that that charity has rather than just that they had a great advert which pricked your conscience at the time you know, charities are very good. Their fundraising departments are very good at having a picture of a kind of starving child or whatever it is, which they know you're, you're likely to pick up your phone and, uh, and, and give the five pounds or whatever. And you really don't know too much about what that charity does or whether it's, it's better than another one doing something similar. So try, try if you can. It's difficult. If you, if you want to give a bit of money, but you're not going to spend a hell of a lot of time trying to do research into them, you're not going to do too much. And I think some people, I mean, one of the problems slightly becomes is one way of trying to solve the trust problem is that charities start saying, well, just give money for this particular project. 
And it was a classic, I think, with people with Christmas presents a few years ago, you know, give money for a particular village in India and we're going to just build wells with your money or something like that. And you could see the same thing happening in this country. And equally, some of the charitable funders will say to a charity, we'll give you money, but just for this programme that you've asked for the money for, only for that programme. And that, it becomes very difficult for the charities because in a sense, I mean, it's called in the jargon, that's called restricted funding. So it's given for a purpose and a very tight purpose only. And that causes the charity some problems because it can end up with a lot of these different things that don't join up. It, it hasn't got the money to pay for all the other stuff. It's trying to balance lots of different restricted funding things. So on the whole, one of the, the things, and it happened, it started to happen certainly with charitable funders during COVID, who tend to give a lot of if this restricted money really tied down. They, they came off that. They said, look, we think you're a pretty decent charity. We're just going to give you the money. You spend it in the way you think is best. And they then might ask, and I think they should ask for some evidence later on that they did spend the money in a way which had some good outcomes and they didn't just sort of waff it up the wall to use a Boris Johnson phrase. But that's kind of trust. And I think the public as well, you know, as I say, if you decide that a charity is, is a good one, then give, give them some money and trust them to spend it in the best way, which will help the beneficiaries that they're trying to work with. But it's a difficult one. And fundraisers in, in charities know that sometimes that general ask people thinking, I'm not quite sure where my money's going. And I really want it to go on this. So I'm going to give it just for this. And of course, charities will, will take that if it's going. It's a difficult thing. And the charity sector, the last six, seven years, has been a few scandals about governance, about safeguarding and so on. And that has dent, did dent the public's confidence a bit in the sector overall which I think was a bit unfair, to be honest. I think all sectors have scandals. I think the charity sector suffers because people sort of think charity sector should be really clean and these things shouldn't happen. But life is life, whether you're in the charitable sector or any other sector. Talking of mistrust, the Charity Commission for England and Wales says through the pandemic there have been modest but significant improvements in public attitudes towards charities. As high-profile scandals involving charities recede in public memory, trust and confidence in charities continues gradually to improve. So we see that trust can be built in the third sector and it isn't doomed to fail. It also highlights lessons we can take forward, transparency and collaboration. As we look forward then, Dan says complete government responsibility wouldn't work. But what about an overarching body, somewhere all the donations are sent to and then filtered out to organisations fairly based on their need? Could that be a possible solution? It's an interesting idea. And in many ways, my organisation, NPC, was founded sort of with that kind of idea at the back of it, that, that somehow it would invent some metrics that would tell you, you know, if you gave me £100, it would tell me which was the right charity for the right cause to give the money to, to get the maximum social benefit, if you like, do the maximum good. And it's a nice idea. It sort of happens in the private sector, you know, that because because people are just interested in profitability. So you can work out, there's a bit of guesswork in it, but which firm to go and invest your money in. But in the charitable sector, it's very, very, it's very difficult objectively to work out the difference. So I, I don't think, I say this as an economist who loves doing metrics and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I don't think I ever really can compare a charity that works with young people on mental health with a charity that works with older people and loneliness and decide which one is more worthy of funding. 
I mean, people try. There are metrics around that try and compare those two. But I think it's mad. It's apples and pears, quite frankly. So how does the future of the charity sector look? With the MPC's Rethink Rebuild initiative looking to learn from lessons of the past, what work does Dan want to see to create a more cohesive and effective road ahead? The ultimate goal is the sector is, ha- is helping more people who need it with, with the resources it's got. I mean, ideally it gets more resources too. And I think that will see a much more understanding that, it, that, that the sector itself is, is, if you like, a big collective. And sometimes it sees itself as lots and lots of little charities, each doing their thing. And of course, you know, you've got to run your organisation and you've got to focus on your particular beneficiary group that you're trying to help or whatever. But if it if it can see itself much more as part of a big whole, and that means you work together more, you share data and intelligence, you work with big organisations, small ones, all that kind of thing, then we'll have a much, a much stronger sector, which, which is able to to do a lot more. And that's why most people are in the sector. You know, they, they, you don't join the charitable sector for riches, quite frankly. And, uh, you know, you, you don't join it to be kind of permanent secretary in the civil service or something. You join it because you care. But sometimes that care gets lost in the current system. And so I hope that coming out of the experience of COVID and the work that we're doing will be a sense that, that, that this is a kind of, we can do more together it's a classic old thing isn't it we can do more together than just working in our silos and that we'll we'll see more of that working over the next few years it's interesting to hear dan's thoughts on charities and their future especially given his impressive stint at the mpc Uh, he accepts the sector is in need of change through better collaboration fewer organizations and a more transparent approach It's rebuilding its reputation after knocks sustained over the last few years, and that lesson of transparency is something we should look to implement when starting from scratch. But charity would have a future in our new world and could be an integral part of our society still. Thanks to Dan Corey and the MPC and to you for listening. For more episodes, you can find Starting From Scratch wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting ogpodcast.co.uk.